that was this magical time in my life where like, oh my gosh, all these things are happening. I'm working for Mr. Bacad. It's And Donald Pleasance calls me one day and says, you know, it's the best Halloween he's read since the first. And then we started shooting. <laughs> no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply... For over 40 years, the Halloween series has thrilled and terrified audiences. From its low-budget origins to spawning a new era of slashers. The franchise remains a cultural touchstone around the world, often referred to as the Gone with the Wind of Horror. From the first chilling notes of the iconic score to the final frame, join Joel Brown as we explore the iconic horror series, digging deep into the characters, the storylines, and the spine-chilling scares. Welcome to Talking Shape with Joel Brown, the ultimate podcast for Halloween franchise enthusiasts. Every legend is based on fact. Every myth is grounded in truth. For 17 years, the town of Haddonfield, Illinois has been haunted by a night when evil roamed the streets and a madman ruled the night. Everyone knows his name. Now everyone will know the truth. I knew what he was, but I never knew why. of Michael Myers, rated R. My next guest is a massive advocate for the horror genre. He's an award-winning writer-director with credits such as Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy, The Haunting of Sharon Tate, The Emptyville Murders, Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th, and of course, everyone's cult favourite, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. It's a big hello and welcome to Daniel Ferens. Hello. Hello, Joel. How are you? Nice to be here with you. Great to uh, be speaking with you now. How does a young fan of the Halloween franchise find himself in the office of Mustafa Akkad? Um, I believe in research, you uh, you videotaped uh, the original Halloween when it was screened on TV. Uh, that's true. Yes, I did. Um, we have this this machine, this new thing, this gigantic thing that sat on top of our television called a VCR. It's like a brand new thing. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, this scary movie, like, you know, all this thing, Halloween. I've heard about it, you know, but I wasn't you know, allowed to see it. But it was on television. So I think my mother was like, OK, it's on TV. You can watch it. Um, but that didn't go. That didn't last long because I remember vividly that the rest of that, as the movie got darker and scarier and scarier as as Halloween designed to do you know it starts in the light and then it goes darker and darker through the whole thing uh i just remember as as night fell on haddonfield the entire family got up and went to bed leaving me alone at age 12 on the couch and i and I, and as the movie got and the lights were off 
And I remember just sitting there with my little VCR remote control so I could edit out the commercials. <laughs> and, uh, and just, I was like, well, I have to get through it. Cause I got, I, you know, I, I, you know, it was like in those days where you just recorded everything. I, was, I just didn't want the commercials. So I was like, I have to sit through this movie because I have to get the commercials out. So, but I was utterly terrified. And I remember having pillows stacked up all around me and just wanting to scream out loud, but everyone was asleep, so I couldn't do it. And that was the beginning. But how I ended up in the office of Mustafa Akkad, that's a whole other <laughs> years long thing. So, you know, it all kind of began with the viewing of Halloween, the original on TV. And then seeing Halloween 2, it opened in theaters, I wanna say a week or so after that, TV premiere of the first film and I think it was that that just kind of became like a, a five alarm blaze for me you know every I, I just needed to know how they did it and so I became that kid in junior high and high school where I was making my own like fan films you know so before they were ever called that so we were making you know, Halloween Hospital of Horrors and Halloween Party and Friday the 13th, the unknown chapter, <laughs> things like that. And that's how I recruited kids to do these things and made friends. And I was kind of shy and new in town. We'd moved from a different, you know, we'd moved from Los Angeles to the small town called Santa Rosa. So I didn't really know anyone. So those movies kind of helped me. I don't know. I think there's a rite of passage kind of thing to that. So anyway, uh, cutting a few years later, quite a few years later, not, not too many, around the age of 18, I, I made my way back to LA by myself uh, with this goal in mind of writing movies for a living. Didn't know how you would do that. I didn't know anyone. Um, I had been fortunate enough, though, to have had uh, some interaction with a producer named Frank Mancuso Jr., who was the producer of the Friday the 13th films. And I had sent, when I was 14, I think it was 14, I mailed, like snail mailed Frank a letter pitching him my idea for a Friday the 13th sequel. <laughs> and I got a response. And it was the first letter he said and last that he had ever responded to from any fan anywhere in the world. And I think he was sort of blown away by the way that I pitched my story and the way I verbalized it somehow. I don't remember what I said, but it was enough to get this man's attention. And and Frank was really encouraging in, in this letter. And he became kind of a mentor to me. You know, I would write to him and he'd write me something back. And you know, so I was really lucky to have had that encouragement from somebody in the business um, and having known no one. So I, you know, did the thing and moved here and been here ever since. But in 89, when Halloween 5 came out, I saw it with some friends. And I remember walking out of that theater saying, I'm going to write Halloween 6. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but I just knew I was going to do that. In those days, there was a thing called pre-internet called the Hollywood Creative Directory. And I looked up Mustafa Akkad's production company, which was called uh, Trankis Films, Galaxy International. He had a distribution company. And I sent a letter, kind of the way, the way I'd sent a letter to Frank. And it landed on the desk of a man named Ramsey Thomas, who worked for the company and had produced the fifth film. And he liked the letter and he said, send me something that you've written, not a Halloween movie or a script or a treatment, just send me a sample of your writing and, and um, be in touch. And I got a call not long after. Mustafa would like to meet you, you liked your script. Oh my God, this can't be happening. So I spent the next, I don't know, a couple of weeks just researching everything and I made this book, I call it the Bible of Halloween. In fact, I think they still call it that, uh, where I, 
compiled family trees, the Strodes, the Myers, the whole lore of the holiday, Samhain, uh, this bizarre mark that appeared on this mysterious character's wrist in, and Michael's wrist in the, in the fifth film. Like, what is this thing? I went to a New Age bookstore and looked that up and turned out to be a rune called Thorn. And uh, I brought all of this research in and, and, and met Mustafa for, I think, all of five minutes. And I think he kind of chuckled when he saw, you know, was, at the time I was, I think it was 19. And I was, he's like, who's this kid? You know, I remember him sitting behind the big desk with the pot pipe in his mouth and, you know, I'm terrified. And that was, that was the meeting. And I left the Bible with him. Five years later, I get a call, five years. He wants to meet me again. They need a writer. They're up against a, a production deadline, start date, and they don't have no script. Please come in. And I went in, I pitched the, my concept to his son, Malik, and uh, producer Paul Freeman, uh, who had done four, Halloween four. And all, we were off and running at that point, just almost instantly. And um, I think I had beat out quite a few, you know, big time writers, directors <laughs> for this part, for this role and to, to, to write this film because, you know, none of them were really getting it, you know? And I think it was the fact that I came in with so much research and I didn't come in with like, oh, talk to my agent. You know, I was so thrilled to be there. And I think that in a way they knew they could take advantage of that. I don't mean that in a bad way, but because I was so enthusiastic, you know, that, and I mean, they know, you know, I would have done it for free. But, but they treated me very kindly and, you know, listen to this day, like that's, it was the beginning of my career and I'm eternally grateful. I mean, that was a great sort of uh, follow on, like, you know, the online rumor being that uh, Scott Spiegel of uh, Evil Dead 2 fame, even Quentin Tarantino, ah. apparently in line or he was somewhat of a surrogate to write Halloween 6. And I mean, the question was right. ultimately why they decided on you. Um, and you kind of touched on it there. Obviously, I think being the fan and sort of actually having a love for the franchise as opposed to, mm -hmm. as you said, <laughs> talk to my agent but I, I want to go back you mentioned number five you, you watch it in theaters and you said to yourself then and there I'm going to write number six what was it mm -hmm. about what was it about uh Halloween five that you said that to yourself you know I don't know what it was it was just something just crystallized at that moment in the lobby of the theater after it was over you could still hear the credits rolling in the background and I said to the two friends I was with I'm like I'm, I'm gonna write the next movie and uh, you know and i think they believed me <laughs> you know i mean i was you know young enough to be kind of naive you know enough to be to be so naive about it that i like you just i didn't know that that's not the way things happen you know so i think in a way that worked to my advantage i was just i didn't have i didn't have the industry knowledge i have now to know that that just doesn't happen that way yeah. you know yeah. um so I think the fact that I was blind to it a bit and, and, and green and naive in that sense helped me kind of get over the fear factor and just kind of go for it. And, you know, not knowing where the chips would fall. I mean, obviously, like I said, there was a five-year lag between that initial meeting and then the one where I actually got hired. So there had been, and it wasn't because they were developing all this other material i mean the, the rights were sitting in limbo kind of the way that the friday the 13th rights have been sitting in limbo for the past several years 
but back in those days there was there was some sort of legal wrangling going on between the different partners of you know who own the rights to the halloween brand and so it took a bunch of years for that to get resolved and then when they finally made a deal to do it with this new company called miramax dimension which had done you know quentin's you know um fiction and there were a couple of other kind of very prestige titles that they were launching that company with because they had been acquired by disney of all things but you know halloween six it's i think the second movie horror film out of the gate for um for dimension which was just a label of miramax kind of a sister company you know their offices were across the hall kind of thing owned by the weinsteins of ill repute these days of course but um but yeah, it was interesting. And then when we finally got to making the film and there I was on set in Salt Lake City, Utah, and it was just this surreal experience, a dream come true. And yet the, the irony was that there were all these like film executives running around, you know, studio executives running around with Mickey Mouse jackets. <laughs> that was pretty funny. You, you mentioned there Miramax, uh, I guess, acquiring the the beat or the rights to the Halloween, um, mm-hmm. Halloween Six at least. Um, Rumour is that they sort of outbid or they beat New Line Cinema, who at the time yeah. um, John Carpenter had somewhat of a relationship with. Do you think if the chips had fallen the other way and they did go with New Line, that you would have even been involved with Halloween Six? No, no way. No, absolutely not. It would have been a John Carpenter, Deborah Hill production made for New Lion. I mean, at this point, we probably would have seen Michael versus Jason versus Freddy. Movies. Yeah. I mean, because New Line owned those characters. And I think that they would have loved to have had Michael Myers. But, I, you know, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know the specifics of how that deal worked itself out and how Carpenter and Hill at the time were kind of not, you know, included in it. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I just know that there was definitely an effort on their part to try to do it with New Line. And I think Carpenter's take on it, we kind of made fun of it in six was he wanted to put a Michael Myers in space. <laughs> so I couldn't, you know, kind of help take a jab at that. Cause that's, you know, and then of course they ended up doing it with Jason. That didn't work out so well. I, um, I recently made a meme, um, obviously, uh, the Michael Myers mask, uh, William Shatner, Star Trek, um, Halloween mm. Star Trek, the shape in huh. space. Oh, I love it. I mean, who knows? Maybe one day that'll happen. You know? <laughs> They're going to run out of ideas eventually. So you touched on that, um, that they had the mask. If I think the first thing you see when you get the call back um, is they had mm. the mask, but they didn't have a script. I um, guess was, was the mandate to you this has to be a direct sequel to number five. I mean, we, we obviously would see separate timelines and reboots mm-hmm. sort of happen in later years. Yeah. Was that ever an option to, hey, let's start anew? Or was like, no, we no. need to continue this on? Mustafa was very focused on giving the fans, because they were in it. You have to understand, like in, in 89, after Halloween 5 came out, again, pre-internet, all of that. So the office was being deluged with these fan letters who is the man in black? Who is the mysterious stranger? Who, like, he's like, I have to answer this question. We can't just move on. We have to, we have to deal with this. And I think that was what I came in with. I had an answer that none of the other respective writers had, you know? And I, for me, again, I always circled back, called back to the original movie. And I think he appreciated that. And the one thing I remember saying to him in that meeting was it's Rosemary's baby meets Halloween. That was like the, 
kind of elevator pitch tagline that I said out loud and his eyes just kind of grew wide. It was almost like, you know, in interviews, I, I, and this all happened later, all these interviews that I saw, you know, on, you know, different documentaries on Halloween. But I remember most of us saying then like, oh, the reason I, I greenlit Halloween, the original in 78 was that John Carpenter came in to me with a very simple pitch, the boogeyman murders babysitters on Halloween. And he understood that. So when I said Rosemary's baby meets Halloween, he understood that. It was simple concept that he was, he, he grasped it right away. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. It's kind of the attitude. Go and write a treatment, come back to us in a week. If we like it, we'll go to the next step. And I wrote this treatment and it was epic. I mean, I don't know how I did this in a way. I don't think I slept for a week. And uh, it was probably 30 pages and it was enormous. I mean, there's just everything that I could think of. It's like one of those, like throw the whole, you know, everything in the kitchen sink into it. And I remember him reading it and calling me right away and saying, this is great, but it's too much. It's too big. But these, the great thing is we have two movies here. There's Halloween six and there's Halloween seven. Great. Let's get going. And that was the beginning of it. I guess, um, yeah, it's a story in itself. Um, the production, the, the script would sort of, uh, go on to change, but mm -hmm. if yeah. you could, if you could in an ideal world, uh, the script that you originally wrote, or that would be the, the final script, I guess, of your original, uh, how different would Halloween six be? I mean, so different. I, it just, it was one of those things where, you know, again, it was this magical time in my life where like, oh my gosh, all these things are happening. I'm working for most of a cod. It's, Halloween six and casting notices are going out and Daniel Harris wants to be in the movie and she's her photos up on the wall with the rest of the cast and and Donald Pleasance calls me one day and says you know it's the best Halloween he's read since the first and he's thrilled you know I, it's like all these things happening that you couldn't for me as a fan of the franchise and I think other fans hearing this would relate it was surreal and then we started shooting <laughs> And I remember from the very early days of production where I was kind of ensconced in a, in, a, in a room in the hotel that everybody was staying at and making all of these script changes to accommodate, you know, weather patterns and <laughs> things that were happening that were not foreseen. Like, you know, they're shooting in Salt Lake City and they had an early winter and all of a sudden it's snowing. So a yeah. lot of these exterior scenes had to become interior scenes. And, you know, that was frustrating enough. But but then add to it like, oh, we didn't shoot that scene. Well, what do you mean you didn't shoot that scene? Well, we didn't have time. We mean you didn't have time. Well, there's no time. We couldn't have shot that. But I'm like, but that's the whole point of the scene. It's like, you've got to build up. Like Michael Myers is a trickster. He doesn't just go in a, into a basement and kill somebody. Mm. He, he, he fucks with their head a little bit first. You've got to create that tension, that cat and mouse. That's what it's about. That's what the script is. And that's what I signed up to do or... I think a lot of these actors signed up for, why are we shortchanging all of this? And again, I was naive enough to not know my place, which was shut the fuck up, <laughs> you're the writer. So I would constantly kind of say like, wait a minute, you guys are not getting this right. This is not how this was written. This is not how this is intended. So it was that level of frustration, you know, from on the production side, somewhat with the director, I felt like he wasn't, fully in tune with the franchise and i did feel like at some point there was a it's just a change of heart with him i feel like he was more interested in you know kind of creating a i don't know again not to 
cast dispersions many years ago, but like, I just felt like Joe Chappelle, the director, was not in it to make the best Halloween movie. He was in it to make the best career move for himself and, and to sign, you know, and, and he kind of played very nice with the brass at Miramax. Rather than sort of fighting for the movie, he was sort of saying yes to everything that they would ask him to do at the expense of, I felt like, the heart of the story of this thing, which was really bringing it back to the tension and the vibe of the first film. Everybody says that when they make one of these. Can't capture lightning in a bottle, but to create a story that felt that it was at least worthy of the name. And there are just so many instances where things just on screen or like the dailies that were showing me were like, wait a minute, well, what about when he's killing Beth in the window and, and Kara's like a rear window scene and she's like, oh my God, he's right behind you. Well, in the script, like he's looking at her and she's looking at him and he like pulls the, pulls the, the shade down over the window. And I'm like, that's like Michael Myers. He's like telling her like, come over, <laughs> let's play, you know? And like just stuff like that, that just, they just never did it. So, you know, there's this kind of legendary, I guess now in fan circles, this producer's cut that we finally got released a few years back, um, which is very alternate, you know, the alternate cut, but a very different cut of the movie that had all of the kind of cult aspects of it intact. But again, that was still not, my vision of the film because it just lacked the, the suspense. And I think more than a horror slasher film, the original Halloween is a suspense movie. It's not, it's not about gore. And so when they started, you know, then they did the reshoots of our film and, and, it, and it became a complete Miramax takeover. You know, the Akkads were basically removed from the equation of their own you know, project. That ended up in a lawsuit, I'm, I to understand. And then yeah, Miramax came in and kind of was running the show and, and it was just gore and heads exploding and people impaled to things. And I just, I didn't get it, you know? And I think we all, I mean, I can speak for Paul Rudd. I just remember we we're just standing there going like, what, what, are, what are we doing? What, what is this becoming? Just felt they were cheapening the whole thing. So that was not a great experience, but <laughs> still the, but the great experience was that we're making this movie. I met Donald Pleasance. He said the lines I wrote for him. <laughs> I had become a, you know, involved in this franchise in a way that I never would have imagined. So those are the, the things that I take away from it that are the upside. You touch on the producer's cut, the theatrical cut. I think um, the producer's cut seems to, while you say sort of not too in line with your, with your original vision, it definitely sort mm -hmm. of holds up in, I guess, in a story sense. It sort of explains it a bit more. Right. Well, it makes a little more logical sense rather than like fetuses floating in fish tanks. Which yeah. I'm like, I don't know what's going on, you know, yeah. and I don't think they understood. I remember the director saying to me like, well, it'll all make sense when you see it on screen. And I'm like, well, it's been 26 years. I still don't quite get it, but <laughs> okay. I, I called the theoretical version uh, Carnage Candy, uh, obviously just adding um, oh, a lot more graphic great. scenes. But um, you mentioned... That, and that's what they did. Yeah, that's exactly what they did. I mean, and that was the intention. It was the mandate that was given and that, you know, Joe, the director of the film, just followed their direction. Like, you want that? Okay, we'll give you that. You know, he never... I just felt he never really fought for the... The, 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 the thing that we all agreed upon when we started. Like, let's make this classy. Let's make this scary. Let's make this kind of a throwback of 
like for another example, I, I had written the role of Dr. Wynn, who was from the original movie, kind of a throwback to the, you know, the character that we met in the first film where he's walking out of the asylum with Donald Pleasance. How did he learn how to drive a car? And somebody around here gave him lessons, that whole scene. And Wynn is that character. And I wanted to cast uh, Christopher Lee, who was well known at that point to have been offered the role of Loomis and, and regretted ever, you know, that he ever turned that down back in 1978. And it you know, kind of gave Donald Pleasance a whole new career <laughs> and visibility among a, a generation of filmgoers that at that point, Christopher Lee hadn't had because he hadn't gone and done Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all these things later. No, but I had really pushed and said, you know, I think, I think even in the script by where I was like, Dr. Terrence Wynn, and then it said in parens, played by Christopher Lee, <laughs> which again, showing how naive I was. But it just, one of the producers, I'm not naming names, but said to me, nobody knows who Christopher Lee is, only you know. You know, it's like you're there and you're so excited to make it good. And then you're kind of confronted with this kind of battalion of, you know, I don't know, I guess I'll call them gatekeepers who are there to kind of just get it done as cheaply and painlessly as possible. Um, rumor online would suggest that uh, Joe Chappelle had a uh, three movie deal, so I guess maybe that's why he didn't want to uh, step on too many toes. Because I, I mean, think you're, I don't, you're already, you already alluded to the career. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that that happened early on. But I think when he played Yes Man for the Weinstein brothers, I think that they rewarded him with that. You know, mm. I think that's what happened. And you know, and listen, I'm not even begrudging Joe that. I mean, we're all have, we all have careers. We all have families you know joe was a young father at the time he had one child i think another was on the way you know i think he was 30 at the time and i think that you know we all you know i mean listen the movie industry is anything but job security so i you can't fault the guy for wanting to take that offer i absolutely can't fault him for it but it's just i just felt like there was a a point in time where he stopped caring about the movie as much as he cared about making sure he was secure. Was it true that um, he cut Donald Pleasant's uh, dialogue? Yeah, I mean, somebody did. You know, somebody on the food chain said that Donald's was too old and kids weren't going to connect with him and let's just cut his role down. I don't know that specifically it was Joe that said that, but I think there was probably somebody on the you know executive side of, of Miramax that probably did. And I think Joe took that, that um, as a, you know, as a, in order to reduce Donald's screen time, which to me was like, what? <laughs> he's, yeah. the, he's the star of the movie. And by the way, he just passed away. We should make yeah. this all about him. But again, you know, I just didn't know enough then to know that it was, it just wasn't my place to say the things I was saying. So I think I definitely rattled some. In fact, there was one point, the one of the assistant directors on the reshoots walked up to me and said, you know, you you can't you can't keep saying what you're saying because it's disruptive and um, you're going to be asked to leave. Wow. I mean, the next question was going to be: Did you have any uh, indirect or direct uh, conversations, or were you the brunt of any uh, Weinstein fury? No. Interestingly enough, I was shielded from all of that, like all of it, because of Mustafa. He took all the heat for me <laughs> like i have i mean i am so grateful to the man because he, he really kind of protected me as if i was like part of his family yeah 
he never let me, if things were being said about me or about the script, about me, about firing me or whatever, never heard it because he shielded me from all that stuff. I, I only was told what I, uh, he thought I needed to know. That's, a, I mean, that's a, a pretty nice thing. Like, and I think that's what was different between the studios or the, I guess, the partners, wasn't it? I think the Akkad fa like family, it was like, it felt like a real family. That's the part that did, you know, and it's the part that lives to this day. You know, Malik, his son, who's taken on the reins of this franchise and done a remarkable job with it, obviously. He, you know, he still talks to me. We're still friends. We still, he shares, you know, inside things that have, you know, transpired about, you know, this thing and that's part of the movie. And usually I know a little bit of something that's going on, you know, story-wise or whatever. He'll give me a little inside scoop on things. Um, so it's nice to still be considered part of that, you know, family. And, um, you know, and I think, I think Malik in a way, you know, what a, it was a, such a terrible loss for him, his family, and obviously, you know, the, the fans of the series that, that his dad and his sister perished the way they did was just tragic. And I don't know if you know the details of the story, but they were killed in a terrorist explosion, mm -hmm. at least just visiting for a wedding. And um, there was a suicide bomber and it was just horrific. And it's interesting that Mustafa spent his life, you know, kind of trying to bridge that gap between the East and the West and, and, and um, Islam and, and Western culture. And like that was his kind of calling in life, you know, and he had made several like epic movies in his earlier years that really were about that. So for him to have died in that way, it was just a pity of, you know, sad irony, but Anyway, but I think that because I did know his dad and his dad was, you know, maybe amused by me, you know, <laughs> I remember he would walk up to me with his, you know, I was kind of terrified of him, of course, because he was with that name, you know, it's an intimidating name. <laughs> he, just, he would just, he had this very, very dry sense of humor and he would just kind of like just saunter up to me standing on a, on, on the set somewhere in the corner and he tried to like catch me at like trivia questions, like Halloween trivia questions. And he'd ask me some question. I would just answer it like instantly. He'd just laugh and try to go away and try to think of something else that I wouldn't have known. I think he was always trying to stump me. He was like the, the Alex Trebek of, uh, Jeopardy, uh, of uh, Halloween trivia. And uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't stump me. So I, I think he was just amused by my knowledge and impressed by it. And, and the fact that I wrote it in such a, in a way that I think got the movie greenlit very quickly. So I think he appreciated it. I came across your uh, archive uh, footage of uh, Halloween Six, and I think uh, oh yeah, I, I think it was just um you sort of uh, mentioned that he'll try to stump you on questions. I think you were filming, and he goes, uh, "Do you have permission to be filming?" And it, it, oh, I, get right. what, I get what you I mean with the, 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 the dry humor, kind of like putting you on the spot. That was like, him. Yeah, right. he's like, oh, yeah, "Do you have permission?" I think to on be that same this? day, it was one of the days he asked me, like, "Oh, who played Tommy Doyle in the original movie?" And I was like, it "Was Brian Andrews?" He's like, "Oh, I didn't know that." <laughs> you know and he would just he was very dry you know and 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 i do remember the other another story of him i remember we, we did a cast reading like a full script reading table read at, at the at the hotel where everybody was you know staying and it was a big conference room it was like it was like a big circular thing you know it's like you see these things like on sitcoms and stuff the cast is reading but this was bigger because we had all the studio executives there so I, mean, I was sweating bullets and i remember mustafa didn't sit during the whole reading he just walked around around the room with a pipe and just circled every time he got behind me he would go 
And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> like everything he's hearing is shit. As whether we're reading and acting the script out loud. There, you know, and, and I just remember him coming to me. He goes, no, 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 it's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. You did a great job. And you said earlier that Donald Pleasance actually called you uh, and said he loved the script. I'm guessing that was mm -hmm. the the original script uh, before, well, yes. before, yeah. <laughs> that before one. production. Yeah. The, one, the one that we didn't get around to making. Any memories of Donald Pleasance? Obviously, this would be his last mm -hmm. film. Any sort of mm -hmm. something that stands out to you that was like, wow. I mean, just the fact that he was in it, and I remember the the trepidation I had even writing these this role, but these lines, you know, his line, the dialogue in that the first movie and the second one, pure credit to John and Deborah, but mostly John I think wrote this dialogue, is that he just he spoke like a Shakespearean character. Mm. You know, there was something so eloquent, so pointed about everything he said. I think, you know, the whole essence of evil and you know, all of those things were so beautifully done that I just didn't feel worried. I was like, I can't do this. I don't know where this is going to come from. And I just had to sort of channel my inner, you know, Loomis, I guess, and come up with what I came up with. And, you know, and, but the, 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 the thing that was just so strange for me was just to hear him say the lines, but he, he always kind of didn't say them exactly the way he wrote them. He, he knew the characters so well that he made them his own. And I will also say that I remember he needed to, something to bridge the, continuity between five and six for those who, you know, have been a lot, of, a lot of years since that film. So they wanted something to open the movie that would, you know, kind of remind the audience and the idea of this monologue came up and, and Donald just went into his trailer and he wrote that. Uh, in, you hear it in the producer's cut, they changed it in the final, had Paul Rudd do it. But Donald sat in his trailer and wrote that his own, on his own. So, you know, he was that, he was so committed to it. And I think just having the honor of of, of him saying those words was just a thrill that I'll never forget. You were speaking uh, on an, uh, another podcast uh, earlier in the year <clears throat> and the, you sort of brought up, you know, that there's potential to have like a prequel Sam Loomis um, series. Like, I mean, because that's the one, I guess, you look at the way people consume media now, in my opinion, it's sort of podcasts or obviously by okay. like a Netflix, by a streaming service. And I and I heard sure. you talk about this and I decided I'll give you the pitch of, um, well, why don't you could do like a little mini series, podcast series, like, you know, working title called The, the Loomis Files, where it's, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, it could be kind of, you could sort of incorporate like a tape recording, but also I guess have the ins and goings of him talking to the likes of a Dr. Wynn and sort of dropping into uh, this this madness Listen, there's there's such a world of new media out there. Who knows what, you know, pardon the pun, shape this will take as we go forward. I mean, obviously, there's a, a new trilogy of films that needs to be resolved. Um, now the second, you know, and that's Halloween Kills, and then next year will be Halloween Ends. But I think once that's done, I think there's kind of now, they're going to be more of an open road to doing other offshoots, you know, spinoffs, what have you. So who knows what form that might take? I mean, Malik and I had been talking about this around the time of Halloween H2O. And that's how long this, ago this was that I brought this to him. Um, and we started really kind of just throwing ideas around about what it could be. But yeah, I mean, there's something just fascinating about the Loomis character and, 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 and where he began and his backstory without, you know, violating too many things. I remember Donald was always very insistent, like he didn't have a family, didn't have a wife. Some of that stuff kind of wound up in one of the Halloween comics back in the day 
that I kind of contributed the story for. And so some of that material ended up there. And I think also like another great kind of um, source of it was the novelization by Curtis Richards of the original movie, which really kind of gives, you know, the whole prologue of the thing is, is Michael Myers locked in the sanitarium and how Loomis becomes this kind of vanguard against evil and all of these things. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's just rich backstory there that could be mined for future movies, podcasts, TV shows, who knows? Cool. I'm, uh, I'll read between the lines. I'll uh, contact you uh, in a couple of years and uh, <laughs> we can uh, get this greenlit. <laughs> Let's go. I'm ready. I guess um don't want to bash them too much, but the, oh. the Weinsteins, are they directly responsible, would you say, for Danielle Harris uh, not reprising her role as Jamie Lloyd? I mean, I can't say it was necessarily the Weinsteins, but it was certainly the, the company that they ran made the decision that she wasn't worth what she was asking, which was a very minimal amount of money for the role. And I remember being on a conference call, I was just in the room and this, you know, the Akkads were on, on the room where I was and, and, and producers on, on the production side. And, and then there was um, Danielle just on her own. I think maybe her agent was on the call too, but I think it was just Danielle and, and then kind of trying to talk her into doing the movie. And she's like, guys, you know, like they're, I, I don't know what to say, you know, like they're, they just don't want to give me anything, you know? And I, I feel like I have more. And, and I remember most of it was very like, no, 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 no. You're, you're part of this family too. And you got to fix this. And, you know, and I think that was the, but I think at the end of it, I think it was some lawyer for Miramax that said, no, we're not paying her a cent more than what we're offering too bad. How much do you reckon that would have to do with uh, budget cuts or budget offsets? Because uh, rumor is that a lot of the, the money went to Hellraiser bloodline. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if that had happened yet. I think that happened later in the process. I couldn't, I can't be completely sure. I mean, I wasn't involved on that level of things, but um, I don't think it was like budget cuts. I think they were just being stingy and horrible <laughs> as they were, you know, rumored to always be. And I, I mean, I'm sorry to be so, so horrible, to, you know, and say such negative things about them because listen i mean i somehow managed to survive a lot of the storm but you know they, they didn't do us many favors let's put it that way you mentioned the rosemary baby theme for halloween mm -hmm. six um the producer's cut it's obviously inferred that michael myers is indeed the father of jamie's baby was that always the case in your original script? no 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 like the fact that people say that is disturbing like no there was he was he didn't rape his niece it's not Michael. It's the essence of Michael's evil. Mm. It's, 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 it's metaphorical. It's not literal. And I don't understand quite how people have jumped to that. You know, I, it's one of the things that does bother me about the, the horror crowd, especially the online crowd, is that they're very, they're literalists. They don't think necessarily beyond what they've been shown. You know, and I think the way the scene was shot wasn't exactly what I had in mind. But no, 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 no. It wasn't a literal raping. It wasn't an incestuous thing. It was, again, I go back to Rosemary's Baby. If you remember, I have to remember the film if you've seen it recently, but there is a, a like a ritual. There's like a drug Rosemary and suddenly she's hallucinating and she sees this figure come out that looks like, is that the devil? Is that somebody in a mask? We don't know who that is. And if that's what she's impregnated. And that was very similar to what was intended in Halloween 6 is that the mask could have been worn by anyone. It could have been a human. It could have just been something more spiritual, something more demonic. And so it was never intended, like 
Michael's having sex with this. <laughs> it's super preposterous. And the fact that people say that, it disturbs me because it's, it was never what was intended. And I guess um, for Halloween fans, there's a bit of closure with um, Danielle Harris sort of being um, cast in the the, the Rob Zombie uh, Halloween remake, right, which, right. which I guess as Halloween fans was a, a nice nod. For sure. And I also think, I think probably Malik had something to do with that because I feel like he thought she was owed some after the way she was treated. You know, so I think that, I, again, I don't know for sure, but I, I would imagine that, that part of the, the decision to, to put her in those films was because Leah Cods felt, you know, or Malik at that point, his dad had passed on, but, but felt that, that, that Danielle had earned that and she was owed that. We'll talk about podcasts just earlier with uh, the Sam Loomis story. Is there potential maybe a uh, podcast uh, revisit of uh, Halloween 6, the original script, and to do a, a reading there, perhaps uh, with the likes of Danielle Harris? And- oh, yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, I mean, we should have probably done it more when we were in lockdown. We were all so bored we had no to do with our time. Like, we probably should have thought of it then. Uh, now people are getting busy again, so I don't know. I mean, sure, you know, I mean, it'd be fun. Maybe, maybe if there's, you know, somebody who wants to do that, on the next anniversary of the film or something like that you know maybe we can talk about it do some sort of stage like live reading of it that would be kind of fun did you read lines with paul rudd for uh, his audition for clueless oh did i run lines with him no no uh-uh no i do remember him coming to the set of halloween six one morning and we you know you have to understand like we were all kind of the same age and you know, there was nothing to do, you know, at night. So we'd hang out with each other or we'd have breakfast in the morning. And, you know, we're, you know, the same age group. So it just made sense. We all kind of gravitated to each other. And um, and then we were the young, you know, the whippersnappers. And then there were the older guys, you know, that we just were kind of always, ah, oh, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't understand anything. Um, but, um, but no, no, Paul, I remember coming to that one morning saying, oh, I just, Everyone was kind of excited for him. You know, I just got cast in this movie called Clueless. I'm going to start it right after, you know, we finish. So everybody was excited. That's the only thing I knew about it. And did you see the potential with Paul Rudd? Did you say when you saw him, be like, you're going to be Ant-Man? No, I didn't. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, you have to, like, again, you were just a group of kids so happy to be a part of this. He was thrilled. I was, we were all just so glad to be there. Marianne Hagen, myself, Mariah O'Brien, Bogart, all these, you know, we were all just kind of astounded, you know, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> this is so cool. You know, Paul was just one of us. And I, I, you know, I remember some of the women on set just, like, oh, Paul, you know, and so like, like, like falling head over heels with over him. And I just was like, him? <laughs> okay. We would hang out in each other's rooms like, you know, we had VHS deck and we'd watch a movie at night or play pool, wherever, you know, things like that. So he's just so normal that it just never, none of that occurred to me. It's just another guy. And a nice one, again, just sweet and, and fun. And, and I remember him telling me, I remember one, there was a moment where he, he found out the way, like I've been explaining to you, the way I got hired to do the movie. And he just was, oh my God. He's like, that makes it so much cooler now. Like it, they makes, it makes me want to make it so much better because this wasn't just like some guy getting a job to write a film. Like This is your like life's passion. And then I remember him telling me a story of how when he had seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind when he was a kid that it had so disturbed him that his parents like, I think had to take him to therapy. <laughs> 
Because I told him the story of how I was like sitting on the couch watching Halloween. Terrified. So I mean, we just share stories like that of our, you know, the stuff that made you who you are, you know. But I, but I knew, I remember very vividly him being so much more invested in, in the project when he found out how much I had gone through to, to get that job and what it meant to me. So, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Still is. It just popped into my head um, in in the style of uh, Sam Loomis to say his famous line from Anchorman, 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> right, right, right. That's for sure. So I was just going to be like a Donald, like a trying to think how Donald Pleasance would say like 60% of the time. Oh, right. Oh, you want me time. to say it? Or do you oh, want if, if, you, if you do, I mean, uh, oh, that would be a great soundbite. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. No. <laughs> Fair enough. Do Loomis, but it takes a minute for me. <laughs> I guess Halloween Six, the uh, the curse of Michael Myers. Originally, it was going to be Halloween Six Six Six, the origins of uh, Michael Myers. But I guess not my script. I don't yours. know who wrote the origin. That's not mine. That was never not my title. Yeah, because no. I mean, there's trailers and that um, out of it as well. I mean, um, yeah. and 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 to this day, we're all like, made that trailer. Nobody knows who made that because wow. nobody in the Akkad side of the world did knew anything about an origin of Michael Myers title that anybody approved. So that was never a title that anybody had ever, ever discussed or just, you know, approved. Somebody threw that on a trailer and that was it. The 666 was the script though. That's all it was. It was just yeah. Halloween 666. And then I'll re- never forget, Mustafa had come into the production office, which was just a room in this hotel, Salt Lake City, one morning with the pipe. And I was like, I, I literally, I think I was in my pajamas because <laughs> I'd been up all night rewriting stuff. And probably wasn't the, in the best mood. And, and I remember they were screening dailies in one corner of this office. And, and I'm looking at it. What? What? That's not, that's not this, like that. What, did, what? I don't even understand. Like, what am I looking at? You know, like it was, I don't, I think it was the scene where the radio DJ falls out of the tree. Like what? What is that? This looks like a it looks like a mannequin. I was like, that's just like a test shot. And they're like, no, that's the footage. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so I never really held back. And then Mustafa comes and he's asking, like, well, we need kind of like a title, like a subtitle, something. You know, we had the return of Michael Myers. We had the revenge. And I said, well, based on what I'm seeing, we should because everything else, the way they're handling everything here is like we should just call this the curse. <laughs> and suddenly he's like oh i like it and that's how the title was born me just kind of bitching about what i was seeing was just not up to my apparently my rigorous standards <laughs> i mean if you ask one thing i would like to see like if i would have done differently so i would have lobbied to have directed the film myself and you would have um hired uh howard stern as the radio shock jock uh, we tried actually. It, the word went out, and he he was making or was in the process of getting his uh, private parts movie off the ground at that point. He didn't want to do anything else. But yeah, that was. I think that I don't know if an offer was made, but I think they explored it. Yeah. The other idea there was it was to have Mike Myers play guy, just play Mike Myers, like mm. comedian Mike Myers, and that never transpired. Obviously. So. I guess sort of looking twenty six years. Um past now i guess what what do you think the legacy of halloween six is you know i don't know it's it's weird for me because i i have my opinions about the finished film but it's interesting to me that how many and and i 
I'm astounded. Like, again, you're asking me to talk about this movie, but also just the, on the online forums and the you know, Facebook forums and things, just the number of people that say they love it. And it was the first one they saw. And I think there's some nostalgia behind this movie. because I do think it came out of the time when some, you know, it was like with the original movie, me sitting on the couch and being a 12 year old and how impressionable you are at that age. I think there were people of that, you know, were that age at the time that have a fondness for the movie. And listen, I don't begrudge them that. I appreciate it. I love the love. Uh, it means the world. You know, I don't love the movie as it stands, like, but I love that I had that experience of getting to be involved in it. Would you say it's a, it's a bittersweet? You got to work on something that you're a fan of and loved as uh, a kid growing up in the genre, mm-hmm. but it was, it, yeah. it was, it was kind of your, your break in, into the business, so to speak. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, it forever changed my life. I mean, it gave me a career that's lasted 26 years now. So I don't, you know, again, I don't begrudge any of that. Um, do I have my opinions about the outcome of the film itself? And when it's on TV, do I go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I do, you know, but um, that being said, you know, it was, it was just something I wouldn't change because of what it was. And I think it, it holds its own. You know, I think it's one of the most atmospheric of the series. I think it's the last of the true quote unquote franchise and that it continued a continuity established from the first film. If you take the third film out of the equation and it was the last one with Donald Pleasance, you know, and I feel like that makes it special in its own right. So those are the things that I sort of focus on. Absolutely. Daniel Ferencz, you've been very generous with your time. Definitely have to get to you uh, down under. And the oh, one thing nice. that, that Australia uh, lacks, and obviously it's a, it's a population thing, is I would love to see more horror conventions uh, down under because I feel mm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a bed of uh, big horror fans here. I believe me, and, I, and it's interesting you mentioned because I, I do get a lot of, um, you know, inquiries and, you know, requests for autographs, things like that. Uh, luckily, it's not so much um, where can I get the producer's cut anymore. Although I still get those from time to time, but yeah, no, I I I I, I hear you, and um, I think that that needs to be a priority. So it needs to bring the you know the convention world, the horror convention world, out your side of the world, and uh, make those introductions to all these people, and just the excitement around it. It's just always so fun to me, you know, to see people's enthusiasm for it. I love it. Absolutely. Greatly appreciate your time. Writer-director, Daniel Ferens, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it. You have a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Talking Shape, the ultimate Halloween franchise podcast created by the fans. Make sure to stay up to date with the latest episodes by following Talking Shape on Twitter at Talking underscore Shape and liking us on Facebook. Feel free to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We appreciate your support. Until next time. Go home. Go home.